Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 152 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen, and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Ranjan Rajagopal. Ranjan is a seasoned general manager and an experienced legal practitioner with over 15 years experience in corporate and commercial, engineering and infrastructure industries, including as general counsel for ASX listed companies. Ranjan is currently the general manager of Bama Services, a leading indigenous owned civil contracting, building and construction and facilities maintenance business and General Manager of Cape York Enterprises, an investment committee established to originate, develop, and incubate Indigenous businesses of scale in order to deliver economic development to the Indigenous people of Cape York. Ranjan has demonstrated skills in leading and managing corporate strategies, governments, risk management, and restructures. His operational and execution focused and experience in change management delivering strong financial returns and creating value through social impact. So in today's podcast, we'll discuss Ranjan's views on the current state of the social enterprise sector in northern Queensland. We'll get Ranjan's insights and perspectives on social innovation opportunities, and we'll hear what Ranjan believes can be done by governments and social entrepreneurs to create stronger opportunities for positive social change. So Ranjan, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure. So to kick things off, Ranjan, can you please share a little bit about your background and what led you to working in the social enterprise sector? Uh, sure, Tom. Um, look, I mean, as you as you mentioned uh, in the in the opening, my background professionally has been in in the legal sphere. Um, I've had over fifteen years in that sector. Started off uh, in Sydney working for a couple of uh, large uh, CBD firms. Moved into the in-house role, as you mentioned, uh, working for a couple of ASX-listed companies. And then about three years ago, I was presented with an opportunity to join Cape York Partnership. So I guess in terms of what led me, I guess, into the social social enterprise sector, um, I guess as a, as a lawyer, I always loved representing and advocating for the underdog. Mm. And uh, what I mean by that is really those stakeholders who are in you know, positions of, I guess, of weaker bargaining power, usually meant um, less financial financial capital available, yeah. but yet had a stronger moral or just or, or legal position. So I guess when the opportunity to join KPL Partnership came up, it was almost too good to say no. Mm. Um, as, as you mentioned, you know, one of my roles is general manager of KPL Enterprises which is effectively the investment committee, and the mandate is really to provide meaningful and sustainable employment and career opportunity to the disadvantaged and previously long-term unemployed Indigenous people of uh, Cape York. Mm, And Barma Services is one of those enterprises uh, which we had established. 
Um, and when I had started, it was very much in a startup phase. So the aspect of the opportunity that was, I guess, most attractive to me was the fact that I would be working with and representing what I believe to be the most, you know, marginalised and discriminated demographic of the population, yeah. uh, i.e., you know, the true underdog in many respects. Yeah. You know, to put things in perspective, Tom, uh, the Indigenous people represent uh, only about 3% of the country's population and yet are overrepresented um, in our country's prisons uh, as well as in unemployment statistics. Uh, in Cape York alone, uh, 60% of the population in Cape York identify themselves as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Yeah. And of that, 62% are unemployed. Wow. It's a huge statistic, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's unacceptable to be, to be completely honest. But I think that's, that's where the, the real strength in your role can come out and the opportunity arises for, for Bama, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I guess the big, one of the big things that, that we focused on is to actually uh, close that unemployment gap, uh, mm. you know, to close that disparity. I mean, like you said, it's unacceptable. So what do we do about it? Yeah. We decided, uh, when I say we, I, I use it loosely, but KPL Partnership decided that we have to take uh, matters into our own hands. Mm. This is from the Indigenous people's perspective and do something about it rather than waiting for government to to act. Yeah, absolutely. So as general manager then, I'm sure you've come up against quite a few key challenges, but what have what have some of these been when turning Bama and, you know, this Cape York partnership into one of Queensland's social enterprise successes? Um, the challenges are numerous, but I guess they can be uh, summarised in possibly, you know, two streams. Yeah. So in the first stream, it's just commercial. That's probably the the biggest challenge, mm. and the second one is actually, you know, obviously the uh, the the social impact nature of it. Yeah. So within, I guess, the the in the commercial context, uh, the challenges again can probably be divided into two streams, um, and they are really, you know, financial capital and human capital. So what I mean by that, you know, in the context of say human capital is you know, attracting and retaining the right uh, human capital, particularly at a senior management level in terms of skill, experience and yep. regeneration and having obviously the right social ethos as well mm. uh, has been very difficult um, for the business, particularly given that we are in a regional location and the remote nature of, of our work. Yep. And this challenge is, is, is compounding um, in circumstances where you have to consider that the senior, senior managers within the business have to meet their financial targets, yep. but they have to do that um, managing a largely uh, a large pool of unskilled and inexperienced uh, labour force. Mm -hmm. So I guess to you know one of the things that the business really focused on uh, to tackle this particular challenge is that you know our philosophy has been to take a, a top down approach and. And what I mean by that is that we concentrated heavily to attract very influential and active board of directors. Mm. To give you an example, in, in Barma, our chairman is David Stewart. Um, and David Stewart has had over, you know, he's been a civil engineer and he's had over 35 years experience mm. in that industry. Uh, and he was a former CEO and managing director of, you know, Leighton Holdings and yeah. John Holland Group, you know, uh, two of the biggest yeah, companies in Australia, if not the world. So, you know, when you start off having 
a chairman of that caliber, it, it gives you the gravitas a social enterprise needs to then attract uh, executives and senior managers and, and other talent mm. uh, in that respect. Yeah. And also it helps us to establish networks for commercial opportunities as well. Yeah. The other big challenge, Tom, is without a doubt the, the access to financial capital. You know, for, for social enterprises, getting financial capital in the traditional way, um, you know, i.e. loans, yeah. uh, is extremely difficult, particularly within our industry where we do a lot of fixed price work uh, in construction and civil industry. It is inherently riskier and a lot of our contracts require us to put up upfront financial uh, commitments by way of bonds, um, bank guarantees, and the working capital requirements are also quite extensive as well. So, mm. and as a startup social enterprise, we are very risky for the banks. Yeah, particularly in the current climate as well. Absolutely. So, you know, but having said that, I should say that you know we, we were pretty fortunate in the early days. We did receive some grant funding uh, from Westpac Foundation to assist us uh, in the initial stages of scaling up and. Mm. We invested that very wisely in terms of attracting some key personnel and putting some systems into the business so that we could compete in the open market. Yeah. Uh, but by and large, we had to think outside the square in terms of getting getting the financial capital we needed to grow mm. and be sustainable. Yeah, I bet. I bet it was a huge challenge. So looking at social enterprise and an indigenous business from a policy perspective then, Ranjan, what do you believe are the key steps that government need to take to help foster and support an innovative social sector? From a government perspective, and, and I'll talk uh, collectively both in terms of federal and the Queensland state government, Yes, I believe both of those governments have actually put in place policies which actually provide a stimulus or structural tailwinds for Indigenous businesses to start up and grow. Mm. So I'm talking here specifically about the Commonwealth Indigenous uh, Procurement Policy and yeah. its Queensland equivalent. Um, so these policies actually mandate a minimum procurement spend on Indigenous businesses across a whole of government basis. So I think uh, from a policy level, the start... It, the basis is already there. The platform is there. Yeah. What these policies have created is obviously a demand for Indigenous enterprises. And it's been a catalyst for growth in the sector, a sector I should say. There's been a, a plethora of Indigenous businesses, startup Indigenous businesses uh, propping up. But what it doesn't do is um, there isn't yet the supply to meet that demand. Mm. So, there, so there remains a large capability gap um, that needs to be bridged. Yeah, uh, and I think this is an area where I believe the government uh, probably needs to focus on to ensure that there's actually support at every stage of the business cycle and business evolution of, of the, um, the number of Indigenous businesses that are, that are starting up. Mm. And I don't think the traditional approach to procurement and contracting um, will bridge that gap. Yep. How interesting. It's, it's a strong insight, Ranjan, and, and it'll be interesting to see how this is addressed moving forward into the future. So just focusing a little bit in on you know, the specific entrepreneurs themselves, are there any really important traits that you believe are just essential for successful social entrepreneurs? Yes, I'll... I'll I'll certainly make some comments on that, Tom, but I should preface by saying that I myself don't consider myself as being a social entrepreneur. I mean, yep. I mean my journey uh, into the sector sort of sort of shows that, but what I can and willing to share with you is things that I've observed, mm. um, particularly over the last three years. Wonderful. And so really, I think, I think some of the, the, 
the common traits or characteristics, as you as you want to call it, that I've observed. I think that the first and probably you know, in, not in terms of order of priority, but the first thing that I've observed is passion. You know, it goes without saying that you need to be truly passionate about a particular social problem or cause. Mm. And, you know, and this usually comes from having a deep empathy with that problem, of course, yep. in, in my view. And then I think equally importantly, and this is something that I had to personally had to come to terms with, is you, you've got to really spend a lot of time understanding the problem first. Um, the common tendency has always been for people to jump straight into solution uh, mode. Yes. But I think it is extremely critical to spend a lot of time to truly understand the problem. Mm. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, an entrepreneur is a problem solver. You need to understand the problem first before you can solve it. And in the case of, I guess, Indigenous unemployment, the starting point for me was to really identify the reasons for that disparity, um, which had its roots really through centuries of disadvantage and racism, creating, you know, that social norm, which is dependent on passive welfare. And then, you know, I think... You've got you've got to be you've got to be in that frame of mind of paradigm shifting, you know. Once you've identified the problem, you know the, the problem continues to exist because, you know, the current approaches to try and solve it um, has either not worked or is ineffective. Mm. So they for, therefore, um, you know, social, social entrepreneurs, in my view, you know, seek to change and challenge that status quo, uh, which may mean changing mindsets, culture. Uh, or policies. Yeah. And equally important, I think you've got to have a business mindset as well. Uh, you know, by definition, an entrepreneur uh, is a person who sets up a business with the intention of making usually a uh, financial profit. Yeah. Um, a social entrepreneur, in my view, is no different. Um, mm. You know, the enterprise that you're trying to create must be sustainable if, if you're going to intend on making a social impact, the social impact over a long period of time. Yeah. And look, lastly, and look, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, but you know, lastly, I think you need to network and collaborate. You, know, you, you can't do this on your own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100% agreed there. Absolutely. Bama's business model is, is very much, you know, an employment-focused social enterprise delivering on those key sort of infrastructure projects. So did you have any general advice uh, for specific sort of entrepreneurs working within that particular area of employment-focused social enterprises? Yeah, um, probably probably two points I'd like to make. I think the key, key word there is business. Yeah. Um, it has to be a business and it sort of goes to, I think, what I mentioned just previously yes. and by definition, you know, businesses exist to make a profit. Yeah. So if your goal is to provide, you know, meaningful long-term employment to a disadvantaged sector of the demographic, Mm. then the enterprise must be sustainable and scalable and must be turning over a profit year in, year out. If it is not a business, if it is not a going concern, then your goal of providing long-term unemployment is not going to work um, because those individuals will no longer have a job. Yeah. You know, I think that's that's probably the key message that I'd make. The other thing, obviously, is, you know, really got to do the research on the industry. We chose the construction space, the industrial space and the facilities maintenance space because they're industries where there is a large reliant on human capital, i.e. labour. Yes. Uh, not so much dependent on machinery, IT, etc. So mm. I think I think with those two things in mind are probably the two things that I would recommend or provide general advice on. Yeah, wonderful. 
So looking a little bit more broadly than Ranjan, are there any countries that you believe are really leading the charge when it comes to social innovation or, or similar sort of initiatives or you know projects that you're running? And if so, what are they doing that you think Australia or other countries around the world could adopt? To be honest, Tom, I'm not I'm not really aware of any um, standout international successes. But generally, though, I think if you're going to have a really strong and vibrant social innovation ecosystem, I think at a minimum you probably need uh, the following things. Um, you know, the, the first cap off the rank, obviously, is government policy. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the government's got to set the policy, which mandates social procurement, mm. uh, I guess, and places a value on social impact. Yeah. Which then obviously flows through into the into the procurement phase. Yes. Um, so not too dissimilar to you know the federal government and the Queensland government's uh, indigenous procurement policy. I think if you have a similar social procurement policy that actually mandates some minimum spends, you're going to actually then have a, a really good platform. Yes. Um, there yeah. to be growth in that sector. And I think there's got to be there needs to be investment in human capital to build capability as well. Um, you know, similar to what I mentioned earlier about the indigenous challenges we're facing the Indigenous uh, procurement. The policy will is generally more focused on the demand side, but you then also need to put a lot of investment into the supply side to make sure that there is that cap- capacity and capability uh, to meet that demand. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think equally important, there needs to be access to patient financial capital. Mm. Um, you know, social enterprises by their nature are going to struggle in that respect. So I think there needs to be innovation in the capital markets as well as from funders or investors who are looking to invest with social enterprises that need to be aware that it is, as we call it, you know, needs to be patient in terms of the returns that they're expecting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what other inspiring Indigenous-owned projects or initiatives have you come across recently that you believe are also creating some great positive social impact? The one that comes immediately to mind uh, is the one in Northern Territory called the Gulkula Mine, which is actually in the northeast Arnhem Land. Mm. This mine, it is the first mine in Australia that is, uh, is, is completely owned and operated by the Aboriginal people uh, off that land. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it provides direct employment to around 100, at least 100 Indigenous people. Yep. Um, but I think the greatest impact that this Aboriginal mine has is the broader economic and social benefit uh, that's created by its existence, mm. um, particularly through the supply chain, uh, through you know other indigenous small to medium enterprises, not necessarily in the mining sector, but I'm talking about you know retail, hospitality, tourism, etc. Yeah, and it and 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 I've read a recent reports that there's been some increased school attendance in the region too, particularly with um, you know. Indigenous family moving into the area, thereby kids going to school um, and really uh, changing the social norms. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's a perfect example, I think, of what's possible when an industry is controlled or materially influenced uh, by the Indigenous people of Australia. Yeah. At Cape York, we've always believed in the thesis that an Indigenous-controlled industry is more likely to engage or procure services through Indigenous-controlled businesses. And Indigenous-controlled businesses, like Obama services, are more likely to then employ Indigenous people. Mm. And the Gulkula mine is really proof of that concept. Yep. You know, if, you, if you start at the industry level, it'll then filter down into businesses, which will filter down into individuals by creating employment and therefore 
you know, that's then going to have an indirect effect on uh, their uh, their families yep. and, and social norms through school attendances and health and various other various other uh, aspects yep. where currently there's a huge disparity between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Mm. Some really interesting insights there, Ranjan. Thanks for sharing those. So to finish off then, are there any really interesting books or there may be podcasts or websites or other things that you'd recommend to our audience? There's, prob- there's probably three that I'd recommend. In a, I guess, a business slash uh, a management sense, I always, always like the book Good to Great by Jim Collins. Yep. Um, it's always a good read just even as a refresher. Startup Nation, um, which is, I think the actual title is Startup Nation, the story of Israel's economic miracle, um, is a good book to read too, particularly for um, entrepreneurs. And the last one, which I enjoyed reading recently, uh, is called The Rightful Place by Noel Pearson. So that that last book provides a really succinct history, I guess, of Indigenous history of Australia, yep. uh, particularly in, in the... Um, in the present climate of constitutional recognition. Mm, fantastic. Well, some great reads there, and I'll, I'll stick links through them in the article, Ranjan. So, Ranjan, very much appreciate your time and your generous insights today. Thanks so much for sharing it, and we'll certainly look forward to following your journey into the future. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.